Hi everybody, Stefan Molyneux here with a good friend Mike Cernovich, lawyer, author, blogger, all around heavy hitter in the realm of media, Cernovich.com. You can check out Guerrilla Mindset, uh, which we'll put a link to below. Thanks, Mike, for taking the time today. Always a pleasure. And we're doing audio only um, today, changing it up a little bit, so that'll be more fun. People can um, just hear our voices, or my voice anyway. Well, and of course, I get to choose the image for you, which is always delightful for me. It uh, gives me a lot of power. Right. And uh, so... I wanted to talk to you in particular because there are some legal issues floating around that I don't really get. And the two important ones at the moment, I think, we're going to deal with the CNN one first. So I'm sure everybody knows this. Project Veritas had a massive, major, mind-bending scoop recently when they had an insider at CNN deliver to them, I guess, a huge amount of recordings from inside CNN. And... Trump has, as a result, through his lawyers, threatened legal action against CNN. And uh, can you just step me through? Because, you know, the first place everyone would go to is defamation. Uh, but that's not the approach that his lawyers are taking. So what's the background and, and what are they trying to accomplish this through this? Right. So that's a great question. What, what are they trying to accomplish? Because there are multi-layers to it. Um, in, in my view... And we, you know, we'll take a step back. I'm sure everybody has seen Project Veritas, but for those who don't, the 30 to 60 second download is that Jeff Zucker has told his reporters that they can't do news, that everything has to be the anti-Trump show, and that real news doesn't matter. Now, a lot of people would say that that's not what the the, the video is saying. I go, well, go watch the videos, and I was in a way left kind of I felt kind of bad for a lot of people at CNN who you can tell want to do real news and real reporting and they they're just not allowed to anymore it's just the anti-Trump show and that proved then the videos established that CNN is not a truly a news network so the question is what legal remedies if any are available and that's what brought us to the the letter sent by Charles Harder, the Harder Law Firm, they're the ones who got that massive bankruptcy verdict against Gawker. They got a major multi-million dollar verdict against the Daily Mail for defamation because Melania was called um, a prostitute by the Daily Mail falsely. So these are, these are real people, but if you read the letter closely, they're not threatening to sue for defamation. They're threatening to sue under the Lanham Act. So I guess before I go on, does, does this make sense to you, Stefan? So far, so good. So take us through the Lanham Act. Yeah, so the Lanham Act is a law that prohibits false advertising. And false advertising, you do a whole – you have a whole class on this in law school, actually. False advertising is very tricky. So I'll give you an example. If I tell you I have the best extra virgin olive oil in the world, you – could say, well, I'm going to sue you for false advertising because you don't have the best olive oil. Your olive oil isn't even top 10. Well, that's just mere puffery. However, if I say that I'm selling you olive oil, but it's really canola oil, which this actually happened, then I've actually sold a product with an adulterated agreement, uh, agree, ingredient, and that's fraud. That's false advertising. So the tricky – so we, intuitively, we understand false advertising, but puffery is allowed. And I bring that up because they are – rather than threaten to sue for defamation, they're saying, well, CNN is engaging in false advertising because they call themselves the most trusted name in news. And we now know that they're, they're not very trusted at all, actually, and they're not even doing news. And therefore, they're making the argument harder is 
that it's false advertising. Now, the reason I bring up mere puffery is because most lawyers looking at this case, including CNN, are going to say, well, I mean, you, you, we haven't made a, a false advertising claim because we're merely hyping our brand. So, I, for example, I used to say, hey, you know, I'm the most, um, the most feared man in media. Well, I mean, you know, do I, do I really believe that? No, I think that probably James O'Keefe or, or someone else, you know, is, is doing probably more journalism than I am. But that's just, you're hyping yourself, right? Your own hype man. And companies, including media companies like CNN, are allowed to hype themselves. Thus, the legal issue is going to be, are CNN's claims false advertising that are defrauding advertisers and viewers out of their money? Or is it mere puffery? Right. Are you advertising on a news network or are you advertising on a political activist network? What kind of audience are you reaching? And of course, are the people tuning in expecting to see fair, balanced, objective news coverage or are they seeing anti-Trump uh, anti activism? And those are really, really fascinating questions because, of course, for those of us outside the mainstream media, it's pretty clear that they've not been a, an objective news organization, in my opinion at least, for quite some time. But do people who simply watch CNN without reference to outside sources, do they believe they're getting objective news like the journalism school uh, teaches, like you talked about, or that fellow talked about in uh, Hoaxed, which everyone should of course check out at hoaxedmovie.com, about how you're supposed to put your personal biases aside. There's a difference between the news section and the opinions page. In the news section, it's supposed to be neutral and objective, and that of course is CNN's claim, and are people bamboozled into thinking they're getting something objective when they're not? Right, and the Lanham Act is what you would call a consumer protection law because the primary goal of it is to protect consumers. And California, for example, has a consumer protection law, quite a strong one, um, 17,200. And one of the tests that they would apply is whether you're two things. One is, would a reasonable consumer have been deceived? And then, more importantly, what did you suffer an injury by being, being deceived? Now, the Lanham Act can also be brought by um, competitors. So, in a way, it's a law, and, and this does. This is why, if people give legal analysis on, they'll go, "Oh, Trump doesn't have a case." I'll say, "Well, actually, not to law explain to people, but the Lanham Act has been abused in ways where, so for example." You know, Stefan Molyneux says Mike Cernovich claims that he is the, the most edgiest political commentator. How dare he? I'm going to sue him because Cernovich is injuring his viewers by lying to them. Well, really what you're trying to do is you're trying to shut me down using lawfare. But uh, there are a lot of those cases that, that do go forward and do go through. So the Lanham Act is a lot more nuanced and complex than most of these people in the media are saying it, and Harder is a quite clever lawyer. Uh, that said, I would put the probabilities of the Trump campaign suing um, quite low. I would say it's probably um, they're, they're not going to sue. If they did sue, they would almost certainly lose. But what that letter accomplished, and in a way it proved, this is what I love about this in a very meta-cognitive way, is the letter proved that CNN is, isn't news because CNN refused to cover the Project Veritas story and the media refused to cover it until Trump threatened to sue based on the videos and now they've covered the letter. So in very Trumpian fashion, <laughs> the Trump campaign has forced 
people in the media to report on something that they wouldn't have otherwise reported on. Well, and there is a huge amount of revelations in there, like in the, in the Veritas videos, and I'm paraphrasing here, I can put the links to them below, but there are a number of people in CNN saying, man, I wish they'd let us do news. I wish they'd just let us do the news. And, you know, other people saying, hey, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Now, of course, if the news people are saying they're not letting us do news, but it claims to be a news organization, uh, you know, that seems like quite a contradiction. And if, even as you say, if the lawsuit can't go forward or doesn't go forward or gets thrown out or whatever, it's drawing more attention to the fact that although it says it's news, there are people on the inside saying, we're just not allowed to, to do the news. Right. And uh, so I'll just give people, by the way, as you're listening in, you know, I hope that people are learning kind of the legal way of examining issues. And and people, you know, probably everybody listening here at one point may need to hire a lawyer. One way you can tell if you're talking to an actually really good lawyer who knows the law is the lawyers will always speak in terms of probabilities. They'll say they'll never say no, you can't do it or yes, you can unless you're just way off the wall. But they'll say, well, there's a low probability that you would want to sue. That'd be worth it. And then if you you know, if you do file, there's a low probability because in law, there's so much uncertainty, and that's how this Lanham Act is uncertain, and that's why the media, they never call on you – know, you, ever, you ever notice this? You'll read an article, for example, about the lawsuit against um, the people we cannot even name because then the, the video will be banned um, just through the algorithm. But, you know, people involved in very high-profile defamation lawsuits, you read these articles, and it's by some 25-year-old at CNN, and, like, they don't even quote a lawyer. Because if you actually quoted a lawyer, a lawyer would say, well, I think um, the lawsuit is not a very strong lawsuit. And they, they all think they're experts on this. So in the Lanham Act, I've seen a lot of you know, people become instant experts, as so often happens, right? Nobody ever talks about the Kurds ever. <laughs> and then suddenly, oh, how dare Trump do this? We're, we're training the Kurds. It's like, bro, you've never talked about the Kurds your entire timeline. Like, I'll even run searches for people. And... Then Trump sues from the Lanham Act. Oh, how I'm like, wow, so you're an expert on the Kurds, um, which I'm not, and I don't pretend to be. That's why when people ask me about what's happening in Syria, I'm like, I don't know, man, and I don't know who to trust, and that's CNN's fault because <laughs> I wish – right? I wish. I wish that I could just go somewhere and, and say, okay, like what's really happening in the Middle East? I, I don't know, and I actually don't know anyone – that I can trust who will, who will you know, tell us all the truth or who has a good track record of telling the truth. And that, again, goes to Lanham Act because I'm a news consumer, and as a news consumer, I have been deceived by the media and through their deception because this is how you analyze these cases. Okay, are news consumers being deceived by CNN? Okay, yeah. Um, is CNN profiting from that deception? Sure, people are seeing their ads. So there's a non-frivolous case that the Trump campaign could bring against CNN. Yeah, and I, of the obviously amateur opinion, I sort of was trying to analogize these things in my head because I kind of work on analogies a lot of times. And I was thinking, okay, well, let's say I have a job that pays me $100,000 a year. I quit that job in order to start up a restaurant. And then someone spreads the lie that my restaurant is infested with cockroaches and rats or something like that, right? And then my restaurant goes, goes out of business. Um, it seems to me, like from a sort of justice standpoint, you should be able to say, okay, well, I quit my job, which was paying me $100,000 a year. You lied about me. You destroyed my new opportunity. So you're on the hook for the money I would have had if I'd kept working at my original 100 k a year job. And I, I, that probably is not a legal argument. It just seems kind of moral. 
So it's yeah, that's defamation. No, you're absolutely right, and that's why you know you know I sent you an article earlier. You know we're talking about why Trump went with the Lanham Act rather than defamation. So if you sued them for defamation, one measure of damages would would be your lost revenue and lost wages. Right, right. So, so with Trump, of course, he claims to have given up a significant amount of money estimates range from sort of hundreds of millions to billions in order to be president. And if CNN is sort of key in destroying his president, he might as well have been back earning that money and that sort of lost income for something that didn't kind of pan out. But that brings a smack dab into the whole mess and quagmire of defamation in America. And we'll stay focused on America because the laws elsewhere are, are quite different. But Man, oh man, I mean, it is easier for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven or a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than to hold American media responsible for destructive falsehoods. What is the story, particularly if you're a public figure, what the hell is going on in law that the media seems to be effectively above it? Yeah, people always ask me, oh, they called you this, why don't you sue for defamation, right? And as a lawyer, I can't even say, well, because it'd be too expensive. I mean, I would just sue them myself. But under defamation, if you're a public figure, you can only sue if somebody stated something about you that was both false and defamatory, defamatory meaning damaging, and it was done with actual malice. And people go, aha, they malicious. They had malicious intent when they criticized you. No, no, no. Actual malice is one of those things. In law, you call it a term of art, which means it doesn't actually mean what you would think it would mean. It isn't the ordinary usage of the word malice is a term of art, a term of legal art. And actual malice means that you made the statement with knowledge that the statement was false or with reckless disregard for truth or falsity. And moreover, it has to be shown that with clear and convincing evidence that you made that statement with reckless disregard for truth or falsity. And reckless is a very high standard. You know, again, we all have these, well, he was reckless. He didn't even think about it. No, no, no. Reckless, again, is a term of art, is a very, very high standard. And it means that you have to be able to essentially read a person's mind to know that they were lying about you. And that's only the first hurdle. <laughs> the, the other hurdles are, and this is a bigger hurdle even than actual malice, an opinion cannot be defamatory. People go, now, we all think we know the difference between a statement of fact and a statement of opinion, but I'll give people an example. I could say, Mr. A is a pervert. And, you know, is that a statement of fact or opinion? Well, these cases have been decided under the law, and they would say that's an opinion. But if I said, one person told me Mr. A was a pervert, well, now that's a statement of fact that's actionable because I'm claiming one person told me. Now, uh, does this make a lot of sense? No, that's why you go to law school for three years. <laughs> and law, law really is a language in and of itself. People think they can read one judicial opinion and be like, oh, I know the law. It's like, I, you know, I would. It'd be like if you learned a couple lines of code and then suddenly somebody tells you, well, it's great that you know how to code, but actually, you know, quantum um, – <laughs> Uh, rays from the sun can actually knock off your code. You'd be like, wait, what are you talking about? You know, nobody ever told me this before. Well, it's true. Same thing with law is, is very intricate. So you, you can not defame someone with an opinion. And the reason I bring that up is because Gavin you know, has sued uh, the SPLC. A number of people have sued the SPLC. I sent you a case where a person, a church, lost a lawsuit against the SPLC. And, and I'll tell people the context. If the SPLC... Uh, determines you're a hate group, um, your life is pretty much over. 
in, in many ways. Um, you're not allowed to raise money on Amazon. You'll be banned from banking. Um, law enforcement will spy on you. And the SPLC made their bones, their reputation by saying, we're reputable. Everything we say is truthful. Well, so people started to say, okay, well, you know, in the example of a church, they're saying, I mean, we don't actually, we're not homophobic. We just believe that marriage should be between a man and a woman. That was a mainstream view. Barack Obama had that view in 2012. So, yeah, actually, Trump is the first president who, at the time he ran for office, was pro-gay marriage. Wasn't Hillary Clinton, wasn't Obama. And they go, so we're going to sue you for calling us a hate group. And the SPLC comes in, and they sued for defamation. And the SPLC sued, or rather defended the suit by saying, no, 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 this is just an opinion. And you can't sue us for our opinion. And sure enough, the cases are being decided for the most part in the SPLC's favor. It's unbelievable. If you're not a lawyer, if you're a lawyer, you're like, well, yeah, I don't think this is right because the SPLC holds itself out as an arbiter of truth and people take the SPLC on its word and that should be relevant. But that's the argument and that argument's being accepted by the courts. Well, and the court's argument is saying, look, if, if you feel that you have been unfairly characterized by somebody else's opinion, the remedy is not the court of law, but the marketplace of ideas, that you need to exercise your free speech rights to fight back against information about you that you perceive to be false. Yeah, they, that old school, you know, the remedy for um, bad speech is more speech, and I find that an ironic argument for the SPLC to make considering that they are the ones trying to ban speech, right? So, so the court is saying, well, the, you know, the, the remedy for the, the speech the SPLC is saying about you is more speech. You're like, but I can't, I can't respond to them because I'm banned, right? In the case of say, you know, we'll spell our name out, maybe the algorithm won't, 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 won't get it, but you know, L-O-O-M-E-R, she can't even respond to speech about her with more speech. The same thing with um, our friend A-L-E-X, uh, J-O-N-E-S. He also cannot respond. So the court, these you would call it disingenuous if you're a lawyer, because you never want to call a court um, dishonest or fraudulent, you could get in a lot of trouble, but you're saying, well, your, your claim is that the answer to the SPLC's lies is to respond with truth, but the lies are believed and therefore, you're removed from social media and you can't respond. We're classic catch-22 situation. Well, I mean, there is also a problem, too, insofar as the way things are phrased, right? So if you say such and such a group is a hate group, that sounds like more than an opinion. You could say, I find what they say to be hateful or they seem hateful to me or they some indications that appear. But when you say such and such is a hate group, that seems like an absolute statement of fact, more so than just opinion. In the same way, if I say, oh, I think someone's perverted. OK, that's one thing. If I say they've been convicted of pedophilia, that's a whole uh, other thing. Right. So one is a statement of opinion. The other is a statement of, of fact. But the equation and the way that it's put forward is you know, it, it seems to imitate very closely a statement of fact, or a statement of, of opinion masquerading as a fact. Yeah, and if you asked um, 90, and, and that's why the SPLC is playing both sides here. If you asked most people, hey, maybe this is changing, but uh, at least we would say five years ago. If you asked most people, if you said, do you believe the SPLC tells the truth about people? They would say, well, yeah, we believe that. <laughs> so... But the SPLC is saying, we're not saying anything truthful about the person. We're just giving an opinion. It's willy-nilly. 
even though, and in that article I sent you, and you know, if you have time, you can read the full opinion. One of the arguments made that should have prevailed against the SPLC was to say, no, no, the SPLC knows that people accept their assertions as being a truthful statement of fact, right? So you can't use this credibility in, the, in it such that Amazon blanket bans organizations. Amazon has the Amazon Smile program. So the SPLC has said if you're declared a hate group, or rather Amazon has said if you're declared a hate group by the SPLC, then you can't fundraise on Amazon Smile. So you're losing money. So you can show damages. You can show that people believe the SPLC. You can show that people are accepting the SPLC's assertions as truthful. You know, tough luck. And as a lawyer, I mean, I've, you know, what judge wants to rule against the SPLC, right? That's definitely where we are. Now, there are some exceptions. And one notable one was, and we're only talking about American law, but you know, there was a there was a fellow in the UK who was called um, an Islamophobic extremist, and the SPLC gave him three and a half million dollars, because uh, unlike America and the rest of the world, when you lie about people, you can be held accountable. Right, right. Now let's jump back to the the um, malicious intent aspect of things, because unless I don't know what the burden of proof would be here, Mike, but if the reporter says like types an email. It says something false about someone and types an email to someone saying, oh, I know this is totally false, but I hate that guy so much, I'm going to print it anyway, right? I mean, would that be the kind of thing that would be yes. accepted? Okay. Now, of course, all the reporters know this standard, right? All of the reporters know the standard. And of course, if it's not documented, then you're engaged in a futile exercise in mind reading, usually months or years in the past. What was your state of mind when you were writing? So because the media in America knows this to be the standard, even if they are motivated by hatred and a reckless disregard, they're never going to say it to anyone. They're never going to write it down. They're never going to have any record of it so that they can deny it and, and nobody can tell anyone otherwise. So the fact that this law exists makes it ridiculously easy to circumvent. Yeah, there's an expression in law, it ain't what you know, it's what you can prove. And we all know these far left-wing bloggers lie about people we know that they know they're saying um, they're liars, but how are you, you going to prove that? You, you know, get them under oath. Is it true that you believed this? No, no, I, you know, I, I believe that this person is what I called them. And, and that's, again, assuming you can even get past the opinion aspect. So, for example, you know, if, if, you call, if you're a reporter and you call someone a racist, the, the, the way those are coming out in the um, – the, the rulings and the, the court opinions is calling someone a racist or a Nazi is actually that's being treated as an opinion because there's – so, for example, you can say one plus one is two. That's a fact. But how do you say that racist is actually um, enough of a term with enough context that people know what it means? Now, again, uh, that goes back to the disingenuousness of all of this. We all know that if you're calling someone a racist, we all know what that means. And it doesn't mean that you're Sarah um, Jiang and you're writing – that you want to abuse, um, el commit elder abuse, right, which is a felony in many states, and you work for the New York Times. We all know that that's not what it means. We all know that racist is, racist is only applied to conservatives, and we all know what it means. But the courts say, well, nobody really can tell what it means. It's not really a factual assertion. It's more along the lines of an opinion, and they're coming that way with Nazi too. So if a reporter calls you a racist, there's, there's nothing you can do about that legally. Or even if they call you, so if you call someone a Nazi, you would, I mean, that's a very specific thing. Racist is almost a state of mind. 
judgment, but Nazi is like, well, have you joined the National Socialist Party? Have you been seen uh, unironically wearing swastikas? Have you attended rallies and, and done the salutes? I mean, it would seem like that is such a strong term that you'd have to have more than just, well, he seems like a Nazi, which is very different from he is a Nazi, which is very different from I've got actual evidence that he's a Nazi. And But those cases are um, cutting against that. The cases are coming out and saying that Nazi is kind of an opinion. There was one um, case that came out that you would think – you would never think this would be the outcome, but a radio host called the person a member of the KKK, and you're like, well – I mean, that's as much of a statement of fact as you can be. The KKK is an actual organization. You're either a member or you're not. And you can prove someone's a member or that you're not. And the court held, well, Ku Klux Klan is taking on a new meaning and people don't think of it as much of an organization. They think of it as just a blanket term for kind of a racist. And I was like, well, but that's the trend. So in, in law – in law in America anyway and, and also in the UK, we have what's called the common law method where you don't really know what the law is. It's being built and shaped in real time, but then you can kind of find – it's called the path of the law, the trend of the law, and the trend of the law is that almost everything you would say is an opinion. I'll give you another example. Most people – um, myself and I, – I, not myself included, but most people thought that Elon Musk – would have the case against him dismissed, and I'll tell you why. Elon Musk went on Twitter, and he got into kind of a beef with a guy who was trying to rescue some stranded children in Thailand, and Elon Musk called him a pedo guy. Well, there's, there is a, a lot of case law, not specifically as to pedo, but it's getting there to where eh, it's just pedo, he was hyperbolic, because one factor on – one factor in – a defamation analysis is the form it said. So if the New York Times calls you a pedo, then because that's a very austere forum, then you can sue. Well, and it goes through editors and, and fact checkers, and it's not just some guy tweeting at his underwear at the proverbial 2 o'clock in the morning. Right, but if it's said on Twitter, there have been cases saying nobody believes Twitter. You can't sue for anything anybody <laughs> says on Twitter. Right? There, there literally are cases saying that. So a number of people thought – that Elon Musk would have the case against him dismissed because, like, well, he called the guy a pedo. He called him pedo guy on Twitter. Is that was he really saying that the guy molested? You know, he didn't get specific enough. It's just like a general kind of slur on Twitter, a forum that that isn't really taken seriously. Now, of course, what Elon Musk had going against him was that you know people take what Elon says quite seriously. He's a public CEO of two multi-billion-dollar companies, so he doesn't get the um, you know the anonymous troll pass. But what, sorry, was and, he but, was he beefing with a public figure or more of a private figure? Totally a public figure. Okay, okay. So, so this case is being closely watched uh, by a number of people, myself included, and I'll tell you why, because. If the case comes down against Musk and is upheld on appeal, then people like you or I will have case law to support lawsuits against people in the media. So the same thing happened in – there was a, a case in Montana where the, um, the Daily Stormer incited a bunch of harassment against um, a Jewish woman in Montana, and the SPLC sued under the theory that inciting harassment is um, you know, emotional distress. And it causes emotional distress, and therefore you can sue. And I thought, well, this is pretty great. So I'm, I'm using actually in a lawsuit, and you and I are going to talk about this more after I filed it. But in my lawsuit against um, members of Antifa, I'm using the SPLC's arguments that were upheld in the court 
uh, against Antifa. So, so it's like a, the silver lining for us is that if, if this case against Elon Musk um, is, it goes forward and it doesn't settle out of court and we do get case law, then we might be able to, to sue when people call us you know, the N-word or the R-word and other, other kind of slurs. Yeah, and you know, the big picture view for me, Mike, let me know what you think of this perspective. It's like, I would really like the law to be more prevention than cure, in a sense. So if you look at the word racist, right? So the first people who get called racist, like it's pretty bad, because it's a shocking new term, and it's been associated with so many negative things throughout history, and it's such a malevolent and toxic mindset according to general perception. I think there's good arguments as to why it is. So it's like the first bunch of people who get called racist, man, they're just destroyed. And then people say, oh, wow, this word really works. So we're going to start hitting it on everyone we disagree with and everyone we dislike. And then what happens, of course, is the word begins, it, there's this crest and this wave of destruction. And then, as we can sort of see now, which is why everyone's becoming a Russian operative rather than a, a racist, the word gets so overused that it begins to lose its impact. And now it's like, yeah, 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 everyone's a racist, everyone's in the KKK and so on. I think the same thing is happening to the word Nazi and so on. But so much destruction has to get wrought in society for the word to lose its power. It'd just be kind of nice if the law could sort of help diffuse the power of the word before it ruins thousands and thousands of people's lives. Yeah, there's, I had, I had a run-in with the foreign newspaper, and you know, they called me something they shouldn't have. I paid a lawyer 300 euros, and it was corrected within two hours. Because in most of Europe, you can't just call people these things. You can't do in Europe what you can do in the U.S. It's appalling. So I, I used to be very much in favor of the actual mild standard because the reason it exists, and we'll give the devil his due, is that um, imagine you or I report on Jeffrey Epstein. Well, he's got enough money to make our lives a living hell, right? Well, he doesn't anymore. He's dead. But like, say, Ghislaine Maxwell – she sues us, and we're like, no, I mean, we actually believe this kind of stuff, and we have some evidence to support it. So th that was the idea was to protect free speech, but the, the law, the ruling has gone too far on the other end, and they should, be, they should bring it back a little bit. And what do you – I know Trump has talked about this a, a little bit here and there, but what do you think – like, what would it take – to and it, you know, it, I recognize the complexity, and it is such a fine balance. You don't want people using defamation to silence others. You don't want any of that stuff to occur. But at the same time, I mean, some remedy for incredibly destructive lies would be not the end of the world. I think. So, what would it take? Would it would it be precedence, or would it be a change in the law? I mean, I mean, how would this super tanker get to turn? Of course, you'd fight massive mainstream media pushback against all of this stuff. But what would it take? Um, you would have to change the makeup of the Supreme Court of the United States of America, and you would have to change it in a way that almost certainly wouldn't happen. So the idea of opening up libel laws could – New York Times versus Sullivan is a United States Supreme Court case interpreting the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. So the only way to change it was you would have to change the First Amendment of the Constitution, or you would have to convince five Supreme Court justices to overrule it, which they wouldn't want to do. For a number of reasons, one is the one we just talked about is they in, in the U.S., you want to err on the side of free speech, and that's so ingrained in almost everyone that even, you know, the flip side of that, too, is, you know, hate speech is protected. There is a Supreme Court case saying that hate speech is constitutionally protected, 
under the First Amendment. So in a way, it's a deal with the devil is people are allowed to defame you essentially, but you're not, you can't be arrested in the U.S. like this happening in the U.K. because you, you ask some questions about uh, you know, things that are happening in your country. So you, you know, in a way, it's like you can't have one without the other. And it's unfortunate. If, if I could just tweak the system a little bit, I would. But the law is it's like a mule. <laughs> it's very, very hard to put it in another direction. Now, one other thing you uh, I wanted to get a little clarity on. You mentioned earlier, like what judge would want to rule against the SPLC. And what do you mean by that? Well, there's, you know, there's a myth that, you know, there's just a judge is just a referee. And, and within legal thought, there was a theory that came out in the 70s, which was more consistent with reality, legal, legal positivism, legal realism, that you know, Richard Posner and others had talked about, which was that judges are subject to the same pressures of all of us. And if you rule against the SPLC, the SPLC is going to come after you. They're going to try to destroy your life. Um, maybe they try to get a Floyd Lee Corkins type of character you know, after you. Who knows? So do you want to risk you know, getting all those editorials, you know, writing about you and smearing you and attacking you? And, you know, because we can imagine the headlines and victory for white supremacists, <laughs> right. judge rules against the SPLC, right? Right, right, right. No, I, I mean, this is the old, it's the old thing that's like a low rent uh, issue that if you're defending somebody's free speech, that means you agree with the content of their free speech uh, rather than the the principle of free. It's just one of these low rent things that that everybody has to. Well, I don't agree with everything he says, but but yeah, all these caveats that that people put in, and it is kind of ridiculous. But okay, okay, sorry, I said that. Yeah, one last thing that I really like to get that clarity on. Do you think it's possible? Because a lot of people who've never skirted with the law or been involved with this kind of stuff, they don't really understand the discovery process, which, again, I'm sure we're going to talk about when you move forward with Antifa. Is it possible that Trump and, and CNN and so on, that if he gets past the first hurdle, he's going to start to be able to rummage around in the internal documentation within uh, CNN and, and depose people under oath and so on, and, or his lawyers, I guess, and, and get even further into it than O'Keefe could? Oh, he absolutely would be. So for the, the way the American legal system works is you file, you know, you, you say filing a lawsuit, but the actual document's called a complaint. And you, so you file a complaint in court, and then the other side files a motion to dismiss. And in the motion to dismiss, they bring up the same arguments that I just brought here, which is it's not, you know, it's just puffery. It's just opinion. You know, everybody does it. Everybody knows what they're getting, et cetera, et cetera. And then the court rules as a matter of law as to whether or not your case can go forward. But if you get past the motion to dismiss, then discovery happens. And, yeah, that's where you get all of your emails and the real action happens. So what could they ask for? I mean, discovery is not, you know, everything back to your you know, high school diary, uh, I guess, except in the case of Kavanaugh, perhaps. But uh, uh, what would they ask for? Would they be limited uh, in the search terms, in, in the time frame that they would be able to ask for? What would what, they be looking for? You would, um, discovery is actually quite broad. So uh, lawyers, when they fight over discovery, they'll say, discovery is not a fishing, fishing expedition. They'll, they'll say discovery is not a fishing expedition. But the rule is that you can seek any documents that are reasonably calculated to get the discovery of admissible evidence. And that's a very broad standard. So even though they say that's not a fishing expedition, 
Yeah, it is. They can they can look for anything. Now, again, it has to be relevant. But in a case like false advertising with CNN, you could get emails, um, memos, staff notes, you know, uh, direction. You could get every Jeff Zucker call ever made, emails from him giving editorial direction, um, internal emails from reporters, at least that didn't involve a source because, you know, you couldn't outsource or anything like that. There are, there are, you know, privilege. They're called journalistic shield laws. But you could get it's pretty much a whole enchilada. Discovery is an absolute disaster um, for people. It's super expensive, and you can get you can really get almost anything. And would they be able? Because I'm always sort of curious about this when it's like, oh, this was in discovery, and then it ends up on the internet. I mean, what is the process if CNN is like, okay, we'll show you this stuff, but here's my private kimono photos, but don't put them out anywhere. I mean, how does that how does that work? Right, you would file what's called a motion for a protective order, and that would de that would demand that all documents remain sealed, and judges take that quite seriously. So, if they did, um, if the if the lawsuit were filed and it did make it past a um, motion to dismiss and it got into discovery, then CNN would file a motion for a protective order. Uh, one would be granted, um, at least as to. Um, any number of documents. Now, as far as it getting leaked, if there's a protective order and it gets leaked, uh, there's usually going to be like hell to pay. Uh, people, you know, judges are very much, you know, people saw South Park, you know, respect my authority. <laughs> well, all, all the work that you had to do with, with the Miami Herald to get access to Epstein's files. Right. And exactly. And that never should have been sealed. And, and even then, right. So if, there, if too much was sealed, then people like me would file a motion to intervene and unseal to get these records. So, so it would be uh, – CNN, it would, it would not be a happy place. Now, the flip side is unless there's a – you can't always get a protective order. So, for example – and I feel so dumb that we have to do this, but that's the way these algorithms are set up. But the deposition of A-L-E-X-J-O-N-E-S was posted on uh, YouTube, and because there was no protective order, that was um, perfectly allowable. Hmm. That was that was perfectly authorized, but if there had been, you can have certain material that would be subject to a protective order, and that that you know that that goes to really deep private matters, not things that you've said publicly. So it, it all depends on what the judge wants to keep private. But in a lawsuit against CNN, because oh my God, the free press um, is so sacred. The judge would grant a very broad protective order. Right. Yeah. Maybe business practices and can all that. Right. Right. Have you been following anything to do with the latest revelations about uh, the uh, Clinton emails, Hillary Clinton's emails, and and uh, yes. new judgment? Do you want to just? Met I'm I'm again. I'm hate to milk you uh, for time, but uh, this is all such fascinating stuff. What are your thoughts on uh, a broad view for people who are not up to speed? And what are your thoughts on it? Right, the Hillary's emails. There was a determination, internal investigation, in the State Department that found that Hillary Clinton and her people, something like 30, it's either 38 people or 58 people, a lot of people. Um, the, the exact number escapes me, but somewhere, a lot of people, dozens of people mishandled classified information between 550 and 600 times, which we all sort of knew. And we also know that no one will actually be held accountable. And the Hillary Clinton email is so um, triggering, maybe isn't the right word because that's a little glib, but it was very frustrating to people because anybody who knows the law knows that mishandling classified information is not um, – it doesn't matter if you intended to mishandle classified information. 
if you were negligent or you know they you know they try to say reckless they try to play these little words well comey came you, up with this whole magical intent thing as far as i understand right. it's not part of the law when he basically decided not to pursue or i guess was helping the doj decide not to pursue hillary clinton back in the day right and th that's again those little magic words because the way it's funny to think of it this way but lawyer law is very much like you go to you know you watch the harry potter movie and you go into like magic school. Certain words have certain magic to them. And lawyers, are, so for example, actual malice. That's like a magic word because it doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean you're malicious. It has it's a specific term of art. And you have to learn all these incantations or maybe the priesthood is better than the magic. <laughs> but, but to show to people you understand the language, you, you use these kind of terms and the way that everybody uses them, and now you're, you're saying your incantation, and you know the judge is like a you know old Orthodox priest, and he's asking you for more incantations to prove it, and that's why Comey came up with all this fake language that like nobody ever nobody ever actually heard, and it's not actually in the cases. And then of course people pointed out uh, an example where a guy was in the Navy, he was on a Navy sub, and he just showed somebody a picture of the reactor, which. I've watched on the Discovery Channel, right? I've always thought it's interesting, like, how people live. What's it like to be on a sub? And then you watch the Discovery Channel, because you think, like, I don't know, there's 2,000 people there. They have to eat, go to the bathroom, sleep. What is that life like? And then you go on there, and you see the reactor. So the guy wasn't revealing state secrets, but it was classified information that he was not authorized to release. Tough luck, buddy. That is the way the law works. But Hillary Clinton... On the other hand, was able to forward classified emails like a chain letter, like a meme. <laughs> and uh, th there is no case that um, would have given anyone a pass for that. But the Clintons are they're, they're above it all. We, we learned that above the law does have a certain intuitive understanding, and the Clintons are above the law. Well, and of course, everyone says, oh, it's so annoying that the Democrats are above the law and they keep committing so many crimes uh, as a whole. But of course, if you want to commit crimes, that's where you want to go. I mean, you want to go to the party that is above the law. So that cluster is not exactly, it's not a random selection of people who've joined. They, all the people look at this and say, wow, Clinton's never get, oh, so the Democrats never get prosecuted for anything. So if you want to do bad things, that's where you're going to go. And that's why I think it's become such a radical party these days. Yeah, it, that's it happened too with a, um, a member of the D.C. was actually the D.C. clique. Uh, I forget his name, Craig Craig or something like that. He's one of those guys with two first names. But he was prosecuted for violating the FARA Act for dealing with Ukraine. And he was actually brought to trial and he was acquitted. Yeah, Craig, uh, Greg Craig was his name. And in a jury, 90% Clinton voters in D.C., this guy was a former White House counsel for Obama, he got a walk. So even in the rare case where people are charged with crimes, which almost never happens to Democrats, the juries there are going to let you walk for anything. That's crazy stuff. All right. Well, listen, thanks for the analysis. Uh, I, I feel that the fog has been blown away by the mighty winds of Cernovich reason. Uh, so Cernovich.com, is there anything else you wanted to mention about upcoming events or, or, or plans that you've got in the works? No, I mean, Cernovich.com, I've been posting there pretty often. Everything from book reviews to natural childbirth, you name it. I'm creating kind of a cultural space there. A little bit of current affairs, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So people 
Uh, they still have to get in the habit of going to Cernovich.com every day, but all the, the good information's there, the podcasts, the summaries of this video, and more will be there. Wow, thanks. I really, really appreciate it. Always good to get this kind of clarity. Thanks, man. My pleasure.